rise up. Whoa, not gonna give up. Whoa, we're gonna rise up. Whoa, we're gonna rise up. Whoa, not gonna give up. Whoa, we're gonna rise up. Rise up, yeah. Oh, we're gonna rise up. Welcome to Rise Up, hosted by me, Steve Kahn. Today, we've got an amazing interview for you with John X. Uh, John has got huge credits. He's worked with um, as an engineer, producer, mixer, um, a remixer, a songwriter, but he's worked with some great, great people. Dave Bowie, um, he's worked with Pink. Um, gosh, there's a bunch of, and I'm going to give you, the sh in the show notes, you'll see a link to um to to all of his credits and all these shows and all these um all this stuff that he's done and it's it's just amazing because we kind of dived into um talking about uh so, some of the fundamentals that he he used and some of his philosophy on reaching the level of success that he's had and um you know we're going to be uh, i ask him a lot of cool questions and and stuff that would really help you guys uh, as you're trying to start your business as you're trying to um, uh, step out of the step out of the boat or step into the unknown and and reach your dreams uh, some of the same things uh, that he's gone through the same things that you're going to go through and uh, we're all humans <laughs> that's what we have in common we're all humans we're all going to be going through that imposter syndrome and and um, and, and trying not to be uh, trying uh, like allowing people around you uh, to do their thing and not micromanaging everyone those are going to be some powerful things we talk about there. And um, but before we dive into this, I just want to let you guys know, um, you know, if you if this has been good for you, or this has been encouraging, uh, or inspirational, motivational. Uh, the whole reason I started this podcast was to give a voice to my um, stillborn son, Asher Kai. You know, I gave him, I wanted wanted him to have a voice. I wanted to start this podcast uh, because something tragic happened, and he didn't get a voice. Uh, I wanted to give um, give him a voice by doing something positive and inspirational, motivational out in the world. So if you smile, if you get anything from this, uh, it's been a win. And uh, and but I, I want to I want to encourage you to head over to my Patreon account and consider becoming a sponsor. Consider becoming a a partner and helping this helping me grow this. There's a there's there's costs associated to running this podcast and. And um, please, if you get anything out of it, you know, please consider being a partner over there. Just go over to patreon.com forward slash Steve Collum. And uh, the link will be in the show notes. And um, uh, hopefully you can uh, become a supporter there. And, and uh, but anyway, without talking too much and um, uh, let's dive into this interview. It's going to be amazing. Awesome. I'm so excited to have John ex Valadis on the show today and um John gosh thanks so much for hanging out with us your your credit list and and the, the artists and the people that you worked to worked with and your story is just absolutely amazing so thank you for being with us well gosh thank you so much for having me and uh, it's my pleasure to see you and it's amazing that I actually get to see you twice in a fairly short period of time um that doesn't always happen <laughs> that's true that's true 
me and John were um uh we've known each other or or seen each other on, on many different Facebook groups and stuff, but we saw each other first time in in person in real life, uh just a few weeks at a at a, at a music event and and uh and I wanted to get down to your stu studio. I know you said come on down, but I was already booked up for extra extra kind of days, but. I, I want to dive in and talk more about your studio and stuff, but let me just tell the viewers a little bit about who you are, just so they know uh, how exciting this is going to be. So, so John has worked with amazing artists. Um, uh, here's a few names, just to name a few. Uh, Tracy Chapman, Pink, David Bowie, some guy called David Bowie, uh, White Snake, The Rolling Stones, Ice Cube, and that's just a few. You'll have to go to his uh you know we'll, we'll we'll put the links in the in the show notes but you have to go check out uh, all the all the people that he worked he's worked with he's got over 10 or 10 platinum records um and two gold records and that's just a few as i said i could probably spend half of this show talking about your credits and and i i wanted to people can go check that out but again john thank you so much for uh hanging out and and the first question how did you get started in music what what kind of, uh, what's some of your background? Well, okay. I mean, I did do the piano lessons when I was about six years old, but I only did them for a year. Um, and I re remember very distinctly that at some point, this is when I'm six years old, um, there was this point where I was invited to one of my classmates' birthday parties. And I went to the birthday party and when I went back for my next piano lesson that week, she said, where were you last week? I said, oh, I went to that birthday party. She said, well, if birthday parties are more important to you, then you can't continue doing piano lessons anymore. And that was the end of my piano lesson. That's hard. That's a hard teacher. I could actually get another teacher or anything, but that was as far as it went. Wow. And things, you know, I don't know that I, you know, I was... We were always listening to music, but it wasn't anything I ever tuned into. I don't think I had a real understanding of it or even started to, like, look at it more closely, probably until I was in high school. And um, my first studio job, I had actually gotten in some trouble at high school and I had to pay for some damage that me and my stupid friends did. And... I got a job at a recording studio in Midtown Manhattan, which was in the Brill Building. And it was a film post-production studio where they would do a lot of editing and they would also do a lot of voiceover. This is in 1979. So everything was manual. The editing, everything was done by hand on reels with razor blades. And so they brought me in basically as a messenger for the first couple of days. And then I think there was one day when they they're like, you know, we don't really have a lot of runs for you to do right now. Why don't you go reorganize the tape sound effects library? And I was like, sure. What's a tape sound effects library? So this person brought me in and showed me how to wind the tapes onto the machine. She said, you know, sometimes people come in here and they don't put their reels away. So you have to. So you have to listen to like what it is, find the right box, stick it in there. And all of a sudden I'm listening to like footsteps and um, fruit being smashed that they use like when people's heads get, you know, exploded and all this crazy sort of Foley stuff. And this is the first time I'm like, oh my God, this is so insane and cool. 
and organized the whole library. And then, you know, I had to go back to school. But then as soon as high school ended, I got a job at this place, Eventide Clockworks, which makes the Eventide harmonizers. And wow. at the time, okay, so at this point, I'm like 16 years old. So I didn't really know anything. I didn't know what a harmonizer was. And I did not know how to solder either. Wow. Um, but I, I, I got to jump in right here. You you said Eventide. That's a for anybody who's not quite sure in the music world. That's a big name. That's a that's a big delay unit, and they do a whole bunch of other stuff. But yes, so keep going. <laughs> so they had just come up with it was 1979. They had just come up with the H949 harmonizer, which is like still a classic vintage unit. Um, so I get this job right out of high school um soldering those things there was those things there were a few other items too there was this little keyboard rig and occasionally i would do the 910 as well but i was there probably for about a month and i had gotten pretty good at soldering one day the boss comes up richard factor comes up and he said hey i want to just tell you all that you're all doing a great job and there's like very few of these are coming back because they're flawed or anything which was like awesome yeah so i looked at him i said what are these things and he looks at me he's like you don't know what you don't know so he so that building was directly above studio 54 um in 1979 the building where i was doing the assembly so he said come with me right now so we go down the elevator run across the street to their like research office which is more like a mad scientist's electronics lab <laughs> and he gives me a personal demonstration of the 949 with a with a 57 just plugged into it. And the very first thing he did was bridge the way all the way down and become Satan. And I was just like, oh, my God. So 16 year old stoner me is just literally like about to spontaneously combust. And then he turns himself into a chipmunk. Then he starts putting delay, 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 and all this stuff. And, and that sort of triggered this whole thing like, oh, that's that other person that I'm hearing on records. Wow. That's that other element that is not like the band playing in a room. And I oh. think that was the first hint of understanding that that I ever had. Well, gosh, and that back in uh, that would have been cut, super cutting edge back in. Um, did you say seventy nine or early? Seventy nine, yeah, it was yeah. brand new then. It had yeah. just come out, so it was it was state of the art, and it was yeah. to meant to replace the nine the nine ten, which yeah. is also an epic unit. And then right around that same time, um, my sister was dating a recording engineer, uh, my oldest sister, and one day. She was like, oh, my God, she calls me up on the landline and she's like, I need you to do me a favor and go drop something off with Bruce. And he's working tonight at the studio. And I was like, really? And I'm like all whiny and grouchy about it because we lived in Queens. So that meant I was going to have to be on the subway for like an hour. So <laughs> anyway, I get the instructions from her. And the place I show up at is the Hit Factory. And um, her boyfriend is recording Tim Curry doing a cover of She's Not There. Um, 
And I want, and so at, at that point, I had been going to see Rocky Horror a lot. And I walk in and like, there's Tim Curry doing his vocal. And I was just like, oh my gosh, this is insane. And then the room itself was like the Starship Enterprise. And right there, that was like the moment. That was like the pivotal moment where I was like, okay, I feel like I got to get a lot more of this. Wow. So even, even um, so after that, I moved to Pittsburgh, went to college at Carnegie Mellon and I was double majoring electrical engineering and computer math, but I still got a job at a recording studio downtown Pittsburgh and started DJing at their radio station at the same time. I was just like, had to be like all up in it. And it wasn't long. I think I lasted about a year in college before the studio and the radio station became such priorities that I didn't even care about, like really the electrical engineering or computer math at all. And then after a year and a half, that's when I decided to move to Los Angeles and get the full studio gig. And then that's when stuff starts getting really crazy. So (laughs) yeah. I want to, uh, yeah, I want to die. I want to dive into some of the, uh, yeah, I, I, I can't wait. And so just I don't want to give you the full thing because we'll be here forever. <laughs> right, right. But it's really interesting. So you kind of started, and I know you're about to uh, tell us about some of this, but so you really kind of started uh, soldering. So that's like, that was your humble beginnings, really. I, I, I guess like you soldered some of these components together. And that's all part of, I guess, some of the uh, the lab coats and the engineers kind of uh, on its journey. So tell us uh, uh, what happened in L.A. Well, I mean, L.A., you know, then I had the full experience. So the first the, I, had, I had a very short lived gig when I first arrived here and I was transferring. There's these super dangerous films that if they hit oxygen, they explode and burn up. I don't remember the word. I think it's like nitrate or some sort of film that was used back in the like 20s or 30s. So my first job was with this guy that was transferring those to video. And he was always like, "Okay, you have to be really careful because you could blow the whole building up. So I, I worked there for like a couple of months and that was that was strange but then one day i was at that place and i went out to lunch and i was sitting on the grass at in hollywood and um this guy just comes over to me and goes hey man what are you doing he starts talking to me and i said and i told him that i was just moved to la and i'm looking for studios and he told me he was a singer and he was on his way to this studio to drop off its demo and do i want to come with him so i was like hell yeah so Mm -hmm. we ride over there and as soon as we walk through the door the owner comes down the stairs and he looks at that guy and he goes he goes i told you last week i don't like your music man get out of here and he looks at me he goes what do you want i said i want a job and he said will you work for free for the first couple of weeks and i said yeah i will i said as long as you promise you're going to pay me afterwards he goes you're you're hired and i was literally hired so that place turns out to be like i think one of the very first things we start we did was like Smokey robinson um an album with Smokey robinson then we did like natalie cole at the time there was this artist thelma houston 
Herb Albert came in there. There was like all these amazing people were rolling in. And the engineers there, you know, even though there was two control rooms, two live rooms, um, my boss only had, I was the only assistant. So I would be like running back and forth. So I'd have to get there at like 8 a.m., align one machine, set up the mics, run into the other room, align the other machine, set up the other mics. It was like insanity for about a year or so straight. But it was really trial by fire. Um, and it, it really was. It was like I had immersed myself in this pressure cooker. But that same boss, like he and I would be at each other's throats, but he also put some really good stuff into me. And he made me, um, I had to, every week I had to make a cassette of the top 10 Billboard singles and oh, give wow. it to him and have it on his desk, which meant that I actually had to listen to the top 10 billboard lit singles and figure out what they were which was a little bit outside of my standard demographic for you know 18 years old but it was a really it was an amazing it was a part of that sort of drill instructor thing that was going on at that time gosh wow (laughs) that's amazing that's amazing and so so he brought in these these amazing talents so you were you were learning from like, like singers coming in that they're on their game. They're a game. They're not just. Yeah. Talking. And there was the session players. So back then, like in that era, we were doing a lot of, it was always live sessions with session musicians. Um, the machines came shortly after I got there within a year, the machine takeover began almost immediately. Um, and what what do you mean by machine? You mean like the system um, in place? Okay, so the fir- that first year, session players, about once a week we would do horn dates. Every couple, maybe two or three weeks, we might do string dates with a small orchestra, you know, maybe 20, 30 piece. The room couldn't really hold that many more than that. Right. But about a year into that, that same job, There was one day when the doorbell rang and I opened the door and it's Roger Lynn. He introduces himself. He's like, hey, man, I'm Roger Lynn. And I wanted to drop off my new drum machine for George, which is Lynn drum machine, serial number 002. Oh, my goodness. He drops it off and he's just like leaves it there and takes off. And so we're like, okay. And how big is it? I I, I haven't seen. Oh, my God. It was it was I feel like maybe 18 inches to two feet wide by about two feet. It was big and heavy, but it had, you know, individual drums. It had individual outs and stuff. And we immediately took that thing in and synced it up to our Prophet 10, which was like, we had the DX7 and the Prophet 10. And I think those were the only two synths in the building. synced it up to the Prophet 10 almost immediately. And one of the guys that worked there started, wrote this amazing sequence of She's So Heavy by the Beatles. Down, 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 down. And that was literally the very first programming experience that I ever had was on that Lindra machine wow. coming up with the She's So Heavy beat. And then, you know, we, we were like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And it was incredible that within a few months of that, the entire workflow structure of that particular studio, because they also had in-house songwriting, the workflow structure immediately changed around that drum machine. Like that 
set the pace for, you know what, maybe we don't need to have those players come in. We'll just drop a, a rhythm section with drums and a synth bass and Gary, you can go play guitar. And, and it was all of a sudden, like things really, there was a radical, it was a radical turning point. Wow. And I was really into the MIDI stuff, like almost immediately. And um, I remember one of the engineers that was there telling me, he goes, oh, man, you shouldn't be wasting your time with that stuff. He goes, that stuff has nothing to do with engineering. I was like, yeah, I don't know. It's kind of fun. I think I'm going to just like not listen to you this time. Right. And it was amazing because within so that was 81. And within a couple of years, like so many sessions that I was doing was all. Yeah. midi boom it was this yeah. rapid massive transition to the other side yeah. to where it was very few people coming in with live instrumentation at all and those were those like early mac computers that were tiny oh yeah yeah tiny, tiny screen but a big box <laughs> <laughs> yeah and yeah. people would bring in like this thing like the sing clavier or the fairlight which was the size of a refrigerator and they would just like roll it in and they're known for their sound and there's even plugins that emulate them but honestly it wasn't my favorite device back then i was like gosh this thing sounds like a refrigerator it looks like a refrigerator but it just sounds kind of okay you mm -hmm. know it wasn't like like someone brought in this amazing hi-fi event you know i felt like we had samplers that did a better job but that might be for a different show <laughs> right well now that's and, and that's so that's so cool and so you were um you were more more the engineering like how did that kind of uh like you were right like that's actually a, you know looking back that was actually quite a uh um like a, a pivotal moment like everyone going from the 70s and the new sounds of like the snares and all that sampling stuff of just the 80s sound that was just that was a big change, you know, not only in music, but in fashion, you know, it was like just a, whoa, you know, really like very big jump from, uh, from the seventies. And you were right at the pivotal moment there. That's, that's pretty cool. That that's, that's really cool. That's really cool. It was after I had worked at that first studio, I had a couple of years at another place called Shangri-La, which is, it's now owned by Rick, Rick, Rick Rubin. But at that time it was owned by Bob Dylan and the band. Wow. Um, and it was a very different place. You see cl snips, clips of it in The Last Waltz, if you've ever seen that movie, which is an amazing film. And I think they mixed some of the soundtrack there. So I, I was the live-in engineer there. And then that place was such a departure from the first place where everything was focused on extremely clean pop music, like, you know, pop precision. Uh, this place was really more of a rock place. Mm -hmm. um, we spent a lot of time doing that Bonnie Raitt album there. Um, and working with her was fantastic. She really was like sort of my teacher. My intro She introduced me to the blues because she was there for so many times um, that sometimes after the session, she would sit me down and she'd be like, John, I bet you've never heard this album. And they had this incredible vinyl collection. Of course, I've never heard it. So she just like introduced me like, here's Screaming Joe, whatever. And there was just 
thousands of them. And she said, this is where I learned, you know, my like slide vibe. And that place was, it was pivotal in a different way. And by then I had already started branching off and not just engineering, but I was starting to write my own music in that place. Um, usually what I would do is I would, I didn't really own any instruments, so I would just use whatever was set up from whatever previous session. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so if people had left out a Juno 6, I was like, okay, that's what I'm writing on. Uh, and I would even play some guitar sometimes. Yeah. But that place was um, all about sort of organic, all about capturing a live performance. And it was a completely different psychology of mm -hmm. capturing a vibe and getting things feeling natural having all these instruments connect as opposed to like the pop sheen from the previous place. Like the mm -hmm. engineering was different. The approach was different. The mindset for what you were trying to achieve while you were tracking was different too, from a production standpoint. Wow, John, thank you so much. That was so great. Um, gosh, you dropped a bunch of gems and it's really cool hearing your stories and hearing, um, hearing the different things that you've uh, you've gone through and of course I'm the mu I'm a music guy so of course I'm geeking out with all the all the things that we're talking about and but hopefully guys this has been really uh, inspirational and motivational to you and I just want I just want to let you guys know now um, you if you're listening to this and you're hearing my voice right now I want to let you know that you can do it you have everything inside you that you need to to step out and reach your dreams it's going to be scary it's going to be it's going to take uh, take a, a step of faith a leap of faith but that's all part of it and we all have to go through that we all have to go through that uh, imposter syndrome we all have to go through that um, that feeling of 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 uh, why me and um, but I want to let you know right now that you can do it. You can do it. And I want to challenge you and, and ask you or tell you or uh, suggest to you, um, what is one thing you can do today towards that? Maybe it's putting down a top top list of, of uh, your top favorite things or the top things that you would like to do. Um, you know, maybe it's even making a list of those those dream things. And um, But uh, again, I just want to encourage you to head over to my uh, Patreon account if you'd like to become a partner with me. Uh, it's patreon.com forward slash Steve Collin. It's in the show notes. And um, awesome. I just want to thank you again for hanging out with us. And uh, I will see you in the next one. Whoa, we're going to rise up. Whoa, not going to give up. Whoa, we're going to rise up. Whoa. Rise up, yeah Oh, we're gonna rise